Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 147 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. It's great to be back after two weeks of absence, and uh, Pat did an excellent job of having the show go on, so guess who's back? Uh, we have three cases today. We're actually recording on Monday because we had technical challenges that we couldn't overcome on Sunday, so probably we're, a good we're idea. Not to, hey, we, and we haven't overcome them yet. We haven't overcome them yet. We're testing. Hopefully that you hear this and, and it eventually gets published. Uh, we... we, we, we uh, it's probably a good thing I didn't try to uh, call in from Ireland for, for numerous reasons, including domestic tranquility. Uh, <laughs> three cases today. Uh, That's the and, most important uh, of reasons. She who it, must it be is. obeyed would not have been happy. No, nah, she, she would not have. So our first case today is is from the Illinois Appellate Court. And I have it, uh, I have the wrong thing pulled up, but it's not Lopez versus Abigail. It's Kalunga. Versus Kalunga versus Advocate. The second case today is Tyler versus Hennepin County. And the third case today... And that second case is from the Supreme Court of the United States. That's right. I forgot to mention that. And the third case is from the Illinois Appellate Court, 5th District, Stephan Eason versus Prairie State Energy Campus Management, Inc. That's your best pronunciation so far of that one. I think that's it actually is. right. I, yeah. I don't know what is the right one, but that one sounds right. I think that's, that's right. So... Uh, practice makes perfect or makes makes even an idiot like me better, I guess. So with that, uh, let's get to our first case today. And uh, th this is an interesting case uh, for those that remember. Uh, remember the horrific crime of cutting a baby out of his mother's womb and then claiming to be the mother. That has now led to an action against the hospital and doctors involved on claims of intentional infliction of emotional distress. The case was heard late uh, last week by the Illinois Appellate Court First District on interlocutory appeal and certified questions under Supreme Court Rule 308A, which we've covered before on this show. The parties focus on the distinct and unusual facts of the case and in response, Justice Mitchell in particular was very skeptical of the pr propriety of considering anything beyond the legal issues presented. Advocates for both sides urge consideration of the facts and brought out facts not in the record, making this a procedural nightmare. The discrete legal issue is whether the defendants can be liable for intentional infliction of emotional distress, where they were unaware of the plaintiff, the father of the child, and he was not present for their alleged conduct. The alleged wrongful conduct is that the defendants failed to discover for a couple of weeks that the woman who committed this crime and who poses the child's mother was not the mother and could not have been the mother, as Pat will talk about in a minute. For their part, the defendants asserted that the doctors on the NICU side of the hospital were heroic in their efforts to try to save the baby's life, that they are not investigators, and that if they had taken the actions requested by the plaintiff and that it turned out to be wrong, that would make out a claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Pat, tell us about oral argument. Thanks, Dan. And so I want to start where the advocates should have really anchored themselves and where counsel for the appellant came back to in her rebuttal. 
And that's the sort of the questions that Judge Flanagan and the circuit court certified. She granted the motions to the motion to dismiss, but she certified these questions in order to assist. Or I, I don't know if she granted them. It's kind of hard to tell. The record's a bit of a mess. But is. the bottom line is, is that she obviously was leaning towards granting these motions to dismiss. And she certified these questions. The first question is, can a cause of action for intentional infliction of emotional distress stand against defendants allegedly engaging in the outrageous conduct towards a plaintiff who was unknown to them and not present at the time of the purportedly outrageous conduct? That's the first question. And in the normal circumstance, you know who the person is that you're directing your outrageous conduct. They're, you're aware of their presence. You're directing it towards them. How else could it be intentional? Uh, the way the plaintiffs have pled this count complaint, it's really long, this complaint, is reckless slash intentional infliction of emotional distress. I don't know why they didn't plead negligence. It's not clear. Maybe there's something in the elements. I have to be honest. I don't know. I, I'm not as familiar with this tort of emotion, of infliction of emotional distress, whether it be negligent or intentional infliction of it. But we've talked about it, certainly, in the privacy context in our Indiana, some of the Indiana cases that we've talked about. But it's a very quirky type of cause of action. So in this case, the as Dan said, the, this horrific crime occurs. The baby is taken by ambulance to the hospital, to the children's hospital there at Christ in uh, in Oaklawn in the south in the near south suburbs, and the 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 quote mother really the criminal, uh, she takes a separate ambulance and is taken to the adult side of the hospital so to speak, and she gets treated. And what the plaintiff's claim is is that she she's in the hospital for three days. But they apparently they have access to records that would have shown she's 46 years old and has had a tubal ligation, thinking she didn't have the baby. She claims to be, and, and because she also comes in with the placenta, which means they don't need to go and do an exam to make sure she comes in with a complete placenta, of course, because of what she just had done. Right. Um, she cut it out. The crime, the, 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 the husband or the, the, the father of the child apparently was injured, battered, whatever, in this crime. So he don't, they don't know, the, the doctors don't know that there's a father involved. In fact, when this mother, the quote mother, the criminal, she says she's the mother of this child. She just gave birth. She begins to make uh, uh, health care decisions for the, for the child. And this goes on for several weeks. The, 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 the DCFS is there. CPD is there. Other law enforcement are there. I don't know if this happened in this hospital is actually outside of Chicago, but I don't know if the, if the crime occurred in Chicago or in the suburbs, but they, they say the police are there in any event, some some variety of law enforcement, whether it's the sheriff or the or, or Oakland police or CPD, whoever there's there's police there. And obviously the doctors and nurses are focused on saving the child. This is what their concern is. This child has obviously been uh, through a traumatic coming into the world. I don't know how far along the baby was, uh, if it was at term or near term where it could survive outside the womb, but it's it, the manner in which it, it, it was, it came into the world is obviously traumatic and it suffered an, an anoxic injury. So the, they don't know of this father. They don't know of his existence. The mother's dead. The real mother is dead. So they can't commit emotional distresses to her. And so what they do is they, they communicate with the person they believe to be the mother, but who, of course, is not. 
uh, and the claim is is that they and so the question is could they do inflictional intentional infliction of emotional distress and the emotional distress is claimed that the child lived for 52 days the father was not identified for 16 of those days and so he missed approximately a third of his child's life and that's the that's the damage okay i can get that now whether there's a claim there or not it's a different question the second question that judge flanagan certified is can a cause of action or for intentional infliction of emotional distress be stated based on purported failures to perform certain acts i.e nonfeasance, versus intentional active performance of certain acts i don't understand this question the tort is intentional infliction of emotional distress i don't know if you can do that through nonfeasance. Uh, negligence, I can see how they might have been negligent, but as counsel for the hospital pointed out, if they did what the plaintiff says they should have done, and that is say, no, you're not the mother, and it turned out they were wrong, that would be intentional infliction of emotional distress. Right. <laughs> because I can't think of much more outrageous conduct that doctors and, and nurses at a hospital staff could do to a woman who's given birth other than tell her she's not the mother of this child and you can't see your baby. Uh, right. So that's, I, I get that one. So I don't know how you do non-feasing intentional conduct. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, it, 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 we'll see what it makes sense to the, to the appellate court, but I don't think they're gonna get that far because this was the argument was so subsumed with the facts of this particular case. And it's kind of hard to get away from them. That ju Justice uh, Mitchell, I almost said judge because I appeared in front of him so often when he was judge, he's now justice. So Justice Mitchell was just, I don't know how to describe it. It's just like, you people need to stop talking about the facts. In fact, at one point he said, the facts don't matter. And in this kind of appeal, the facts don't matter. We are presented with a legal question, in this case, two legal questions that we are told will assist the, the trial court in making a determination. This is not a final order. This was not a dismissal. Bring us one if you've got one, but you don't have one right now. What you have is the certified questions that the circuit court is asking for help with that she can then use those to help make her decision as to how she wants to rule. I'm going to correct somebody said earlier, no, it's not dismissal. I think she's leaning strongly that way, which is why she certified these questions in this way to try to get some clarity. These questions were certified in 2021 and they're just getting to the oral argument now. So who knows what's been going on in this case? It's, right. it's wild. Uh, but the, to get a 308 certification, you have to get both approval of the circuit court as well as the, the, uh, the appellate court. And we may see what would, we would call in the Supreme court of the United States, a dig uh, dismissed as improvidently granted. That certainly seemed to be the way Justice Mitchell was thinking. It's like, we can't, you people keep talking about the facts, stop that. And they just kept talking about the facts. <laughs> they wouldn't stop that. Till rebuttal by plaintiff where she focused on the law. Um, it, it, a horrible set of facts. Uh, I, I, I just, but I don't see the cause of action. There's no claim, by the way, that the doctors or the hospital or the nurses or any of the staff did any malpractice. There's no claim that they didn't do everything they could and did everything they could properly to try to save this baby's life and notwithstanding their efforts were unsuccessful. Um, there's not a claim that they did something wrong that they, that caused uh, what happened. So Dan, uh, what are your thoughts? Pat, I think you're right on just from listening to your oral argument and the challenge here. 
is, is that these are horrific facts, very fact intensive, but this, this uh, interlocutory appeal is, is to give her guidance, like you said. And so I think this is, they, they would do the equivalent of, of a dig from the Supreme Court. And I think it's going to go back and uh, Judge Flanagan's going to have to figure She's out how to, get to, to do, do it without this, the help. I, I think, and, <laughs> She's going to do it on her own. <laughs> right, right. She's not going to have much help here and very, very tough case. Like you said, though, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know uh, that there's a case here. Um, we've talked about a, a intentional affliction, emotional distress, and being in the zone of danger before, and you know all, all kinds of things, right? And so they didn't even know he was out there. Uh, on the tubal liga- ligation piece, uh, again, I'm not an expert on it, but my understanding is that it is reversible, just like uh, other things. You can have your tubes untied, and and so again, you, you know, the 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 thing that took place here, as you talked about, is is that these medical providers were doing everything in their power to attend to this baby's well, and, saving and this baby's life, looking, and really not and they're not they investigators. Her medical records. They're interested in saving the baby. They know what right. they know. The baby has had an anoxic event. Right. They, there's not. They're not doing gene test. They ultimately did gene testing once the, the the investigators told them, "Hey, there's a problem here. We don't think this person's the woman. This is this this woman." is the mother, we need to do DNA testing. And they did that ultimately. And the one of the points that the, the lawyer for the doctor made, there were two separate uh, lawyers for the defense. One of them represented the doctor who was kind of the lead NICU doctor. And she said, once she got word from the doctor or from the investigators, hey, you know, there, there's something rotten in Denmark here. She apparently took custody of the child, even without the arrest having occurred and, and risked her license, frankly. Uh, in, in, in doing that. It was an extreme step, but she felt it was uh, necessary. It turned out, fortunately, she, well, fortunately or unfortunately, she turned out to be right uh, in what she had done. Right. Um, so, I, I, again, there's a lot of sympathy on the side of the plaintiff, but you can also see it from the perspective of the hospitals. There were apparent, I think there were amici that may have come in. I got the sense there were other hospitals that had filed briefs. It seemed it was a crowded courtroom. Perhaps I think, so. uh, I, think the, I can see why the hospitals are very interested in this, because if they're going to be exposed to claims of this kind, not that this particular kind of thing is going to happen again, because that's pretty outrageous, uh, pretty unusual, but that's something that they could be found to be liable for intentional infliction of emotional distress under facts even remotely like this uh, seems you know, pretty unbelievable. So uh, a very interesting case and a case that maybe bad fakes, bad fake, bad facts make bad law and um hopefully not because I, I i just don't see the cause of action here but yeah. we, we shall see um so with that we'll take yeah. our first break and come back uh with our second case tyler versus hennepin county hey podium and podcast listeners if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 147 of the Podium and Panel Podcast, and quote, Miss Ross, you're throwing a bomb into 240, 50 years of history with respect to delinquent taxes and sales only because if you 
define it at the, as the time the state takes title then the, and valuation as of that date. That was the prelude to a question from Justice Sotomayor to Erica Ross, assistant to the Solicitor General during oral argument in Tyler versus Hennepin County, where the questions presented are one, whether taking and selling a home to satisfy a debt to the government and keeping the surplus value as a windfall violates the Fifth Amendment's taking clause, and two, whether the forfeiture of property worth far more than needed to satisfy a debt plus interest penalties and costs is a fine within the meaning of the Eighth Amendment. The facts as described in the petition for writ of certiorari are, Hennepin County confiscated 93-year-old Geraldine Tyler's former home as payment for approximately $15,000 in property taxes, penalties, interest, and costs. The county sold the home for $40,000 and, consistent with Minnesota forfeiture statute, kept the proceeds, including the $25,000 that exceeded Tyler's debt as a windfall for the public. Dan, tell us about the oral argument. Thanks, Pat. And again, a very sad fact pattern here. Like you said, a 93-year-old lady spent in this house for a long period of time. Uh, you wrote a column uh, a few weeks ago, I think, Pat, uh, that included this case and included the case from Illinois that had to do with the doctor that was living out of state. And, Gillis uh, versus City of Rockford that we talked about on the yeah, show, and that was in the 1401 context. Yeah, right, right. And you, uh, you, you called it uh, uh, equity theft, and I think it's an appropriate title for this. It's, uh, and we've talked about other cases. We talked about the case in Indiana with the with the car, with the uh, the, the, the auto for the, the, the guy. Tim's case. The Tim's Tim. case. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, these now cases. That was a civil asset forfeiture. That was a civil a asset forfeiture. It was different than this. So it this was. Had, that it was adjacent to a crime. There's no crime here. Was, this is yeah. just not paying the taxes. This is a civil yeah. issue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, that, so the issue here was was she uh, she was from and Minneapolis. And one other thing, one other thing that that case was purely an Eighth Amendment case. It was. This case is first and foremost a takings case, right? And you might get to an Eighth Amendment uh, uh, excessive fines issue. So right, right. And again, this was uh, in modern day arguments. This was a rather short case, weighing in at about a hundred minutes. Uh, so not not the not not some of the marathons we've talked about in this. Uh, podcasts and some of the other cases, but an important case. The, um, uh, like you said, you know, uh, this, this case has two things. It has a takings uh, uh, clause and it has the Eighth Amendment's ban on excessive fines. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there was questions for the Biden administration. They filed a friend of the court brief uh, that uh, the, 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 uh, 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 county's actions violated the takings clause. The uh, court here, uh, pretty pretty interesting. Um, you you mentioned the statement uh, that uh, Justice Sotomayor, as a prelude to her, her question, talked about. Um, the uh, 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 the the real issue here again is is, is I think as your article uh, talked about, Pat. Uh, is uh, is this equity theft? And and by equity theft, here you have a situation where a condo was sold. Um, the the property uh, she owed fifteen thousand dollars. They sold it for forty, and because of this uh, kind of the the argument of the government is that this is uh, uh, a disincentive, uh, kind of you know the. Uh, preventative measures, right? So that people don't 
not just pay their taxes, right? That we need property taxes to fund our governmental agencies. Um, but uh, on the other hand, uh, it, it sure seems to me, uh, and it seemed like the court's going to go here, uh, potentially hard to tell always, right? With the court, we've, we've talked about some cases where sometimes, uh, uh, you, you listen to oral arguments, you, you read the transcripts, you, you look at all the, uh, Supreme court experts. Uh, this happened in one of the early abortion cases that, that, uh, in Joan Biskovic's book, she writes about, it seemed like it was going to go one way. It didn't go that way. Uh, so you don't know until these decisions come out and we'll find out in June, but, uh, it sure seemed like the, at least the majority of the justices on this court were skeptical that under, uh, under the takings clause specifically, not so much the eighth amendment, but really focused on the takings clause that this is a takings, right? And it has to be compensated. You can't just take $40,000 because somebody owes 15 and get to keep the rest because that's the penalty. You know, it's a, uh, it seems like it's a harsh maneuver. One of the interesting things I thought in this case was we've had uh, discussed on the podium and panel podcast, other Supreme Court cases. Uh, Neil Cottiel was actually uh, defending uh, the appellee in this case, the uh, the, the county uh, that had assessed the taxes, uh, which I found interesting because a lot of times he's on, he seems to be on the opposite side of the issues, if that makes any sense, of, of uh constitutional things you know so well he was he was he actually has solicitor or he was for uh hawaii and us and and trump versus hawaii i mean that's an example right 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 um and and what his biggest argument in this case was that that she doesn't have uh that that miss tyler in this case doesn't have standing um because it was just uh uh she, she contends that the property interest was taken from her was equity in her condo. Uh, her, her complaint, according to Cadiel, did not actually allege that she had any equity in her condo uh, because as the county's brief uh, discussed, there was also a mortgage for nearly $50,000 and a homeowners association lien for nearly 12000 on the property. So if you take those, the theory is, is that she doesn't have any equity in that was taken, right? She uh, was a pure debtor on this property and was was upside down on on the total equity. Uh, not sure that the justices were necessarily buying buying that argument. It, it it sure didn't seem like it from the from the uh, questions that he got in relation to that. Um, you know, it's it's one uh, one of the things that that I think we've talked about on the show before too, Pat. Both in Illinois and Seventh Circuit and Supreme Court. Is, is we're 200 and some years into this uh, grand experiment and that, that a case like this hasn't uh, uh, come up in this kind of context, you know, in, in all those years, that's exactly on this point of a takings clause like this. Uh, the, 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 there are many regimes, uh, many counties, many states that have, uh, I believe, and again, I haven't done full research on it, but I think uh, from some of the, the discussion, some of the, the arguments and the briefs that a lot of counties and a lot of states have these types of uh, equity theft, as you would call them, uh, provisions in them. And so uh, interesting that this has never come up. Um, it, it's uh, And it's interesting, too, because, again, uh, we, we talked about uh, the yacht case a couple of uh, episodes ago. Very small amount at stake, right? And so uh, the highest court of land hears about 65 cases a year. And... 
Uh, this case involves the net of about $25,000, right? So, but it's has major, major ramifications on a much larger scale. And so it'll be interesting to see what, what the court does with this. And if, you know, I think, uh, it'll be interesting to see if they, if they even talk much about excessive fines under, uh, eighth amendment, uh, because I think they can address this on the takings provision and not have to get into whether this is an excessive fine or penalty. So it'd be interesting, I think, to see what they do. So, so a couple things. Uh, first, I, I in my column I submitted today the, to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, I mentioned Katyal's arguments regarding the that this is his standing argument, which, which even Justice Thomas just breezed right past. It's like, yeah, I, I don't want to talk about standing. Let's let's move on. Um, what Katyal said, though, were a couple things. First of all, that apparently there's three other cases that are already in the pipeline on this topic, to your point about how this hasn't come up. The reason yeah. why it hasn't come up is because the vast majority of states don't do this. I, 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 I so, the, so a couple other things also. They kept talking about what the Fifth Amendment said at the founding. Why? Why not at the time of the 14th Amendment in 1868? Right. Um, I, I, I suspect that fewer states had this in 1868 than the Virginia and the Kentucky statutes that existed at the time of the founding or shortly thereafter. And one of the points that the petitioner made was that not a single one of the cases that they were, that, that were decided in that era under these ever, any one of them allowed for equity theft. Uh, to use the pejorative. With regards to the government, uh, and by the government here, I mean the United States, they found that they didn't take one side or the other, but their position, and this gets to the quote that I read from Justice Sotomayor's question, in case you couldn't tell, she was very sympathetic to the government here. She's very worried that the government is going to take the property and then they're going to be, have to have, a, to be a real estate agent for the, the property that they just took. Like, you don't, don't take the property. You have other ways to get your money. Um, she was very worried about how the government might be harmed, as opposed to the uh, little old lady that got her house taken. Now, on that part about the house getting taken, another point that Katyal makes is that apparently Miss Tyler told Cap the County of Hennepin she was abandoning the property. She didn't want anything to do with it. She wasn't living there at the time. She was living in a nursing home. And the reason she and then speculated the likely reason she didn't want anything to do with it because she was upside down in it. She didn't have anything. She didn't care about it because she didn't. She was never going to see the light of day in, in the thing. So I get that. But yeah, just very interesting to hear Justice Sotomayor really taking up for the government, really worried that the government was going to be held, left holding the bag. I, I found that to be a very curious argument. To yep. your point about others, eight states came in for the petitioner in this case. And I don't know if anybody came in on the other side of things yep. um, in, in support. I think Minnesota did to support its own law. The county, obviously. I don't know if any other states that have this. Illinois, by the way, is one of the states, obviously, as you can see from the Gillis case. There's some dispute as to how many states have this. Katyal kept saying 19 or 20. The yeah. petitioners say 12. It's unclear how many really right. have this. Um, so a really interesting case. Um, what's also, they kept gawking about the treatise by St. John, uh, John Tucker. And apparently Tucker said, you know, you can do this. But then when he was faced with cases where this happened, apparently, he didn't actually do it, even though he had the authority to. So it's it, it's kind of curious that 
the treatise, he says in his treatise, you could do it, but then doesn't do it. Uh, so I, I, it's very interesting to see how the, the originalist justices tangle with this history that is kind of goes both ways, where yep. you have these statutes at the founding, not a majority, to be sure, yep. um, but you then have a treatise that says you can do this. It's a discussion over whether the, what the treatise actually says. Uh, it, it's a really, it's a very interesting case. They have very good facts for them if you take them as their pled. Uh, this is on a motion to dismiss, but the, he was arguing, Katyal was, that they didn't meet the Iqbal and Twombly standard of bringing themselves within, because they didn't plead the right things. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, he says that they are pled the proper way in the other cases, just not this one. This is a case of a lawyer trying to win the case that's in front of him, right. as opposed to trying to win the overall argument. He's like, there's other cases. You can, we, we can win some of those other cases. Let me win this case. You know, so I, I don't and think it's it, going to work. And then in those cases, if it, it, it'll, he'll argue something different, right? Oh, exactly. <laughs> you bet he will. You bet he will. Sorry, it's, uh, or or someone else in his stead, if it's not, if it's not him. So right. with that, we'll take our next break and come back uh, with Stefa, Stefanson versus Prairie State Energy Campus Management, Inc. That's a mouthful. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 147 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Over the last three years during COVID, we may have asked ourselves, what is an office? An argument last week seems to ask that very question. Specifically, does a pump house located in St. Clair County that feeds water into a power generation facility that is located in Washington County constitute another office for the purposes of an establishing venue in St. Clair County? That is an essential question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District decides Stephenson, Stephenson versus Prairie State Energy Campus Management, Inc. The plaintiff sued his former employer and a holding company in St. Clair County for retaliatory discharge. The defendants moved to dismiss based upon lack of proper venue and to transfer under forum nonconvenience. The circuit court denied the motion. On appeal, the defendants contend that they do not have a registered office, that they do not do business, as that is defined by the courts, principally as sales, and that there is no other office in St. Clair County to lay venue there because while employees go to the pump house on a daily basis to maintain it, they do not maintain anything like an office there. Pat, tell us about oral arguments in this, another case of the county disputes in Southern Illinois. Indeed. And this is not, I don't think this is a case that's going to, it's not a forum case. No. Uh, the forum seemed rather, rather weak I, in terms of where the witnesses were. So put forum to the side. I think they yeah. raised it. Why not? But the, 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 the real meat of the argument here is venue. Now, venue is a statutory right. Unlike forum, it's reviewed de novo because it's a it's a it's a factual or sorry it's a legal question, and the legal question here is what is another office? Now there are some cases out there that take a very expansive version of what an office is. If you recall, uh, to contrast, there is a case we talked I think we talked about on the show where 
the Illinois Supreme Court held that a sales rep who had his office at home, that did not make the office of the company in Cook County where he had an office because they didn't do something to make that their office. They didn't hire him because he was in Cook County. So in this case, the question is, did they, they had this pump house that was on the Cascassia River. They could have put it anywhere along the 300 some miles of the Cascassia River, but they have happened to put it in St. Clair County, just in, pro, you know, in proximity to where this facility is that's entirely in Washington County. Um, trust me, you'd rather be in Washington County than St. Clair County. Um, and so they, the, if you're the defendant, that is. And so right. the question is, is this an office? And if that's an office, then damn near anything is an office. Right. And, and I, I didn't hear defense counsel make that argument, but that's the argument she needed to make more explicitly. She made it implicitly. She needed to make it explicitly. Your Honor, if this is an office, anything is an office, uh, you know, because they don't have anything that looks like an office there. It's just a facility. Yes, it's important for the cooling of this, of the electrical facility they have there. Yes, that's all very true, but that's not, I, I don't see how that's an office. No. Uh, this, so this may not be the end we see of this because what is an, the statute doesn't define an office and this might help us determine what that is. I think it's an interesting issue and a statutory venue is a very important issue that sometimes gets overlooked. Um, there also is a goofy thing in this case about where their registered agent, the registered office is. Their registered office is in a town, I can't pronounce it, in that Justice Cates on the panel is like, that's in St. Clair County. They're like, no, actually not. It's in the, the post office where they go to because they don't have mail service, goes to this other town that's in St. Clair County, but the actual actual address is in a portion of the town that's in Washington County. And the whole facility is entirely in Washington County. Um, I, I, you know, For those of you that aren't from Illinois, we have cities like Aurora that are in four counties. Um, the Bartlett's in three counties. Uh, most rational places put a city in one county. Right. Illinois, Aurora is in four counties. I don't understand how that's even possible. It's a thing. Um, so it's a <laughs> it's a quirk of of Illinois of Illinois uh, government that that's how things work. I, I think this is a case to keep an eye on because I don't think this is the last we've seen of it. And venue is is obviously very important. Dan, anything to add on that? No, I think you covered it, and will will be an interesting case to watch and. I agree with you. If this is an office, then almost anything's an office. The pipeline that gets the electric, you know, the grid, anything can almost any, any outhouse you've got is an as an office. Right. Now. I mean, right. Certainly doing business in the outhouse. So, I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with that, we'll move to our. I think this segment's on life support, Dan. Uh, I do too. But there are still some big cases out there. We've talked about certified questions from the Oregon Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court from the Ninth Circuit. So we, 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 uh, we'll keep it now for the business interruption for COVID cases. Nothing, you know, most of the big action is gone, but there's still some left. So we'll, we'll keep it out there. It's, yep. it's, it's a big issue. Uh, yep. Prediction sure to go wrong. We went one and one this week. Dan is 209 and a half, 46 and a half and 14. I am 206 and a half, 49 and a half and 14. 
we got Ori right. This is the case where the lady slipped and fell on a what was claimed to be an unevenness between or a place where concrete met pavers. And there was a dispute over how long that had been there and how big that was. And the, the big takeaway from this case is if you're going to admit Google images for the purpose of showing what's in the image, you have to lay foundation. Now, what that foundation is, uh, it, you, you have to bring, presumably you have to bring someone in from Google to say when the picture was taken, who took it, when it was taken, yada, yada. I posted about this on LinkedIn, and our friend Tim Kowal said that there is a statute in California that a website is self-authenticating. Well, which is crazy. That's great that it is that it is what it, that's only one layer of the hearsay from what I can see, though. That yeah. gets you, okay, it's the truth. But what about what's in the document? So I don't know if that would get you all the way home if we had such a statute. We do not, to my knowledge, have such a statute in Illinois. Um, but that I, I think that only gets us over one layer of the hearsay. I, by the way, we discussed this case, or the, the Ori versus City of Naperville case, on episode 134. Um, Dan, uh, anything to add on that? No. Why don't you tell us what the other case we got wrong? Do you want to tell us about Hattori or, Hattori or am I on Hattori? You can go. Yeah. All right, very good. We discussed this on episode 143. And this is a case of the what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Uh, this is a case where the defendants tried to file a third-party complaint against a party that they the court said they were aware of more than two years prior to them having been served, or two years prior, they were served more than two years prior to when they sued them, and you needed to file their action because they knew or should have known who it was, and they were certainly on inquiry notice um, to figure out who it was, and they didn't take enough steps. Uh, a lot of options, you know, they could have taken the deposition of the plaintiff sooner to try to identify this uh, entity. They could have filed a 224 petition, perhaps. If they knew a suit was coming, that was suggested by my uh, partner, uh, King Roy. So there's some other options they could have taken. They didn't, and now they don't get to bring their third-party complaint. Uh, so that's, as I said, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Um, anything to add on that one, Dan? No. Okay, let's go to the rule of the week. You want to tell us about the rule of the week? We're going to do predictions first? Oh, sure. Oh, shoot. Yes, predictions. Sorry. Uh, Kalunga versus Advocate. This is a dig. A dig. Uh, wish that we'd get an answer, but I don't think we're getting an answer. We'll get an answer eventually, just not now. Yeah. Um, procedures wrong. Uh, Tyler versus Hennepin County is reversed. Reversed. I think the citizen is going to win here. I, I think I think Justice Sotomayor might write a, a lone dissent from, by, yeah. from the way I can gather. I don't. I didn't count any other no's in her favor. Um, yeah. Neither. I, I, perhaps Justice Jackson, but I didn't hear anybody else voicing the concerns that she she voiced in the same way that she voiced them. I don't know if, if uh, Jackson, she, you know, she's still got a streak for not having been dissenting on any opinion. I don't know if this will be the one that breaks it. I, I don't know. Maybe it's not. It's going to happen some point. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it definitely can't be that It can't be that she's the middle of the court. Nah. I, 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 that can't be the nah. case. <laughs> but she's, she's doing, you know, she's doing like uh, some, some of the justices over the history of the court where they, didn't descend for right. You start slow and you don't. You try to see if you can compromise or you know whatever. We certainly saw that with Barrett. We saw yep. that with we've seen. You know, I think Kavanaugh is more towards the middle of the court, uh, so it's not a surprise. Gorsuch certainly didn't do that. No, uh, Gorsuch came out no. uh, guns a blazing. 
Uh, so right. he didn't take the more congenial. I don't know if it's congenial or just trying to. I don't know what it is. Uh, but she cannot be in the middle of the court. I, I just I, no. repeat, I don't think that's the case. Um, no, I doubt it. Uh, and so finally, we come to uh, our third case, uh, Stefanson versus Prairie State Energy. I, it's just certainly the Justice Cates isn't buying it. I don't know about the other justices. Um, yeah, I, I think this is getting affirmed, and I don't think this is the last we're hearing of this case. I agree that's on my, both of those. That's yep. my view. All I right. think that's right. All right, so now, now the rule of the week, Dan. Yep, and you located this one. It's it's has to do with changes and amendments to Supreme Court Rule 102. Why don't you tell us about those, Pat? So the Illinois, as every state has, is some has a way to serve people by alternative means. If you can't serve them by the usual personal service or substitute service, this kind of a thing, you can do alternative service. And what the Supreme Court has done is expanded the means by which you can do that. And they did it by rule. Now, normally, it, the, the court, it's defined under statute 2203.1 of the Code of Civil Procedure. It's any means that the court deems consistent with due process. So I have often joked that you could do it uh, by yelling uh, the person's name three times at the corner of uh, uh, Randolph and, and Clark uh, out in front of the Daly Center if you wanted to. Um, I, I don't think that would comport with due process. But if the court said it was, then so be it. Um, the, uh, so usually it involves, you know, regular and certified mail publication, uh, but now it can include text message, uh, Facebook or, uh, uh, social media, and it can include, um, what's the other, what's the other means, Dan? I'm drawing a blank, um, direct, I'm sorry, direct social media message, email and text message. Yeah. So the Illinois Supreme Court brings us into the 20th century, uh, maybe the 21st, but the early 21st century, uh, with being able to serve people by these means. It's a good change. I, I, we talked about when we were on the California Appellate Web podcast, we talked about how we have this curious amalgam of Supreme Court rules and civil rules of civil procedure or code of civil procedure. And this is another place where they just kind of, it's like, why is that over here and not over here? Uh, why did the General Assembly get on this and had to be done? But I, I think the Supreme Court has the authority to do it. I think there's a problem with it, you know, from a uh, from a constitutional perspective. It's just curious. We just put this stuff in all in one place. No, it's going to be all over the place. The one, the one thing it, it kind of raises in my mind is is uh, with social media and stuff uh, that there's the ethics of friending people and, and mm. ghosting them and stuff. So people, the lawyers will have to be careful if they're trying to serve not to take means that you know become friends to then be able to direct message them or whatever so that's true you'll have to be careful how to do that 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 is right. that is um you may not be able to do it is 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 what may happen yeah um, and text so messages with, you might get a get, get a, a can spam act or other <laughs> let's violation <laughs> if I, I will say this if you've got TCPA. The authority, if you've got the authority of the court to do it hopefully that doesn't happen right um, so with that, we will take our uh, take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week on the Podium and Panel podcast. We'll see you later. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel.
Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.